Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In this episode of our series on 2 Kings, we're going to examine the tragic downfall of the Israelite kingdom. We'll see how the seeds of its destruction, planted at its inception, came to fruition over the historically brief period of only 200 years. We're going to be looking in 2 Kings today at the end of chapter 14, and we're going to go through chapter 17, but we're going to skip some parts of it. We're going to skip those parts that deal with the kingdom of Judah. We'll come back and pick that up next week. What we want to do today is just go ahead and look through and see the end of the story of Israel. We're going to see the fall of a nation today. And we're going to see the full tragedy of it, and we're going to see what the writer of Kings emphasizes as opposed to what he doesn't emphasize. And as usual, the writer of Kings ignores details that we would love to read about. Because that's not his point. And his point is not so much on the how as the why. And the why is what we always miss and we always misinterpret. And even when we get it, we, we get it right in a superficial way, we see, we see the top level of it, but we miss the real full dimension of the answer that's given. And that's why the Bible is written the way it is. And that's why First King, First and Second Kings is written the way it is. What we see in this passage, go ahead and keep that open to the end of Second uh, Kings 14. I'm going to begin the story there with Jeroboam II's reign in verse 23. But this story really begins in the reign of Jeroboam I, chapter 14. Uh, in chapter 14 of First Kings... At that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam fell sick, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it be not known that you're the wife of Jeroboam. Go to Shiloh, and behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves and cakes, a jar of honey, go to him. He'll tell you what shall happen to the child. Now, that whole thing tells you so much about Jeroboam. You remember what Jeroboam's whole kingdom was based on, I mean, it was given to him by God for free, basically, as a penalty on Solomon. And God took away the legacy of Solomon and gave it to Jeroboam and only, gave, only left a fraction of it to the descendants of David because God is determined to be faithful to his promises, all of his promises, even to unworthy people. And Jeroboam received the promise of God for a kingdom for free, and he blew it. By deciding that he wasn't going to worship God the way God wanted to be worshipped, he was going to worship God the way it seemed to him to be more politically expedient, and he set up altars with graven images to Jehovah God, of course. And had these golden calves made with the inscription, This is the Lord your God. And had 
a temple shrine at Bethel and a shrine up in Dan in the northern part so everybody would have a chance to come and worship at an altar in Israel and not have to go all the way back to Jerusalem to the temple in order to, in order to worship there. And for political expediency, Jeroboam sold the soul of his nation. And everything in Israel traces back to that. All of Israel's destiny traces back to that. 200 years before the end that we're going to get to in chapter 17 of 2 Kings begins with these words in chapter 14 in 1 Kings. Now, you think about Jeroboam. He sends his wife. Why? Because he doesn't think that, you know, on one sense, you know, he doesn't want to attract attention. The real reason is he really realizes that he's persona non grata in the eyes of the prophets of the Lord right now. He's had several prophecies rendered against him by prophets of the Lord. And so, figures, well, they probably really don't want to see me, but I'll send my wife. But... I don't want to go as my wife because they may not receive her if they know that she's my wife. And so I'll put her in a disguise. Who is she going to see? A prophet of the Lord. Why is she going to see him? To find out the true destiny of his son. What is the point? This is Jeroboam's thinking. He is a humanist. And he thinks, and it's not... Let me clarify something. And I've made this point several times. The polytheism that they are steeped in is thoroughly humanistic. Polytheism is not theism. It is humanism. Polytheism is not about a belief in gods. The belief in many gods is not about a belief in gods. It is about the belief in man and that the gods are entirely like man and that we, if we apply the right means, can control the gods. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that there is a difference of worldview between naturalism and supernaturalism. The worldview of the modern era is naturalistic. That means that everything has a natural cause and effect. We are a scientific people. That's the way we think of everything. Everything has a natural cause and effect. That is our worldview. And it doesn't mean that people don't believe in God. It's just that they don't believe that God has anything to do with anything. God is about how you feel. It is not about why things happen. That is our worldview. In the ancient worldview, they were less sophisticated in their unbelief. They believed that they could control the supernatural things that were impacting their lives through natural means. Okay, which one is more godless than the other? I don't know. There's the distinction, but it's not. Still, polytheism and naturalistic humanism, they are both humanism. The focal point is man. And really what that basically comes down to is that man is God. Man is God. Man is like God. Man can do God-like things. Man in the place of God. It's a temptation that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent said to Eve, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
humanism. Man in the place of God. What is the theme of our theology? Where do, what is our basis for it? God is God and we are not. And that is the point of view of the book of Kings. God is God. We are not. And all of our problems come from ignoring that fact. Well, Jeroboam sends his wife, who is one of the... You know, nobody remembers Jeroboam's wife. I got a book recently titled Jeroboam's Wife. And it goes through, and it's a book that talks about all the women that you've never heard of that are in the Bible who had a major impact on things that took place and events that took place in the Bible. But, you know, just... and and. The title, though, is the first one mentioned, Jeroboam's wife. Do you remember that Jeroboam's wife did this? Do you remember this about Jeroboam's wife? How she went to the prophet in disguise. Of course, she was busted as soon as she walked up. The prophet immediately said, <laughs> what's all the disguise about? I know who you are. I know you're why you're here. Let me just go ahead and tell you, the news is not good. And he proceeds to tell The baby is going to die. Sorry about that. And all Israel is going to mourn this child. And this child is going to be given a proper burial. And he's the only one of Jeroboam's sons that is going to get a decent, honorable burial. He's found that much favor in the Lord's sight. He hasn't lived long enough to do evil. In other words... The baby is going to die, and this is going to be a grace from God. This is going to be mercy from God for Jeroboam. Let me tell you what's really going to happen here. And in, uh, moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel. As a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. I don't think it was Jeroboam's intent to create a new religion. Jeroboam, as we talked about, Jeroboam, it's like the religious liberals of today. He decided that he could determine what religion is supposed to be like. And he had the political power to do it. So he did it. It comes back, we as men make God like us instead of being like God. That's right. We create God in our own image. That's what it always is. Chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, don't get confused by all these. Now, you do realize that just like in the present day, people in ancient days sometimes shared the same name. Don't get confused. That's just one of those things that happens. There was a Joash in Israel. There was a Joash in Judah. About the same time. Don't let that upset you. The reason I say that is sometimes people let stuff like that upset them. I don't know why. And Israel and Samaria are really the same. Yeah, because it's like talking about Washington as being as being American government. You know, Washington is America. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Of 
Israel. So, we've got Jeroboam. He is another Jeroboam. Jeroboam II. No relation to Jeroboam I other than the fact that he had the same name. And Jeroboam II, just like Jeroboam I, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Began to reign in Samaria. That was his capital. Remember, Samaria was the city built by Omri. And made stronger and weaker. Stronger politically and militarily, weaker spiritually by Ahab. And he reigned 41 years. What? Now, we, this is what we talked about the last time we were together. We looked at Amaziah, who was the good king in Judah. And he had a good long reign. But he also experienced defeat. Jeroboam II. He was a terrible king in God's sight. But he was highly successful in man's sight. He had a long reign. It was a powerful reign. And there was a, an era of prosperity that Israel had as a kingdom had not, had not seen since the day of the division between the kingdoms. It was the most prosperous time in the history of the northern kingdom. And it was the most prosperous time in this region of the world since the days of Solomon. Economic boom. And it just so happened that all of Israel's enemies were weak. That the empire of Assyria was in decline. Everything was settled and there was trade and there was prosperity and there was still idolatry and people never did get it that the goodness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. God led up from the rod. He led up from the punishment. He led up from the chastising that He had been giving. And the people didn't get it. He sent to them prophets. We see the, this is the time of the ministry of the prophet Amos. The early days of the prophet Hosea. During this time of boom in the 8th century B.C. And he did what was evil in the, in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel. Then he talks about you know, some of his achievement. He restored the border of Israel from Nebo Hamath uh, all the way. According, now look at what it says. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. You remember Jonah? That's the same Jonah. That's the same Jonah. Now the interesting thing is that's practically all we know about Jonah and the ministry of Jonah other than from the book of Jonah. So what we really know about the book of Jonah of all the prophets, we know Jonah as being the prophet who was a failure as a prophet. In terms of well, in, I mean, I mean, that's just what we, we, the things we know about Jonah, you know, are in the book of Jonah and all of that. And we know about his sour attitude and sour spirit. But this is characteristic of what 
Jonah was living in a time of, ex- of re-expansion of the Israelite kingdom. And a time of prosperity. Where did the victory come from? Where did the prosperity come from? It came not from the might of Jeroboam, as Jeroboam and his henchmen thought. It came from the mercy, the mercy of God. Because God was letting, the the victory was from the Lord God. Look at verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left bond or free, and there was none left to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. I don't think that's the way the newspapers of that time reported it. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, all he did, and all his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath and Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? <laughs> that is so funny. I get, I, I'm sorry, I get tickled by that every time. Because, yeah, as, as I put it, so if you want to read about all this stuff, go look in the library. That's not what this book is about. And of course, the funny thing is, none of these writings are preserved. Why? Because this kingdom was destroyed. It wasn't important. All of their achievements, and this is so much the message of the prophets. We're going to see, you know, when we talk next week about the, the kings of Judah, we're going to see and the rise of the, of the prophets in Judah, principally Isaiah. And we see the mess. All the kingdoms of the world are dust. The fine dust on the balance. You know what the fine dust on the balance is? That's the dust on the balance that has no absolutely. Now you want to get the balance. You know, everything was done, money was done by weights and measures. It wasn't done by coinage. It was done by weights and measures. And then you'd take so much silver and you'd measure it out. And that would be, and so it, it, it mattered. I mean, it mattered down to, the, down to the nth as to how much it was. The fine dust on the balance is what you don't even bother to dust off and to blow off that dust because it doesn't change the equation. The kingdoms of the world are like the fine dust on the balance. They don't matter. See, this is Isaiah's view of God. This is the world view of God. Get used to it. God is God. You're not. So we see this message coming through. Say, you want to see what these men achieve that the world thinks is important, go to the library. Of course, the library has been burned down. And everything in it. And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Skip over to chapter 15, verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. Shortest reign since old Zimri, who reigned for a week. Sure. If this is the same Jonah, and he's been prophesying in Israel, and nothing changes, nothing happens, and he goes over. To Assyria. To Nineveh. To Nineveh. 
to the empire that is in decline. The worst of the worst, and he prophesies and has 100%. Has a revival he doesn't want. <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> he's he's confused. He's bitter. He see people don't understand the reason that Jonah was upset about going to Nineveh to preach is that he knew what God was going to do. He knew that God was going to spare the city. He knew that there would be a moral reformation that would keep that city and that empire alive, and that. Not many years from now, that same empire was going to come through and be the hand of God to chasten Israel. And he didn't want it. And God had to remind Jonah who's, who gets to be God. I like the way Jonah ends. Yeah. It's just like you don't know. The tree dries up. Yeah. I'm God and you're not. <laughs> And with, with the words and the admonition of Jonah, God's concerned about the babies in this town too. Mm. So he didn't depart, as short as he reigned, he didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, which is another way of saying if he had lived any longer, he wouldn't have done it. <laughs> it's not that he didn't have time. He had no intention. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibleam and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, I'll go to the library. And the only thing significant about Zechariah is that he fulfilled the promise that God made to Jehu. Your sons will sit on the throne to the fourth generation. The interesting thing is, <laughs> Zechariah... I mean, God was so done with Jehu's line by this time. They, these men had proved to be so unworthy of the reward that God gave to Jehu. And God was so ready to get rid of these guys. He gave Zechariah six months and said, okay, you're fired. And apparently quite literally. But that is the, that's the only thing significant about Zechariah, verse 12. This was the promise the Lord gave to Jehu, and so it came to pass. God is faithful even when men are not. God keeps His promises. God fulfills His covenant. Keep going. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned, that's the same as Azariah. Uzziah, Azariah, same king, same guy. And he reigned one month in Samaria. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Zechariah was a... Well, he only reigned six months, but that was six times longer than Shalom got to rule. At this point, what's going on here? Following the death of Jeroboam II, what we, do you remember back in the 60s when, when the, toy, the term was coined Banana Republic? you remember what that had reference to? That had reference to the fact that it seemed like every week there was a revolution going on somewhere in Central America. And every week there was, there was a, a military coup which was being overthrown by a Marxist revolution which was being overthrown by another military coup. And so, you know, you had this, this back and forth going on. And so the term was coined, the Banana Republic. Israel is starting to look like a Banana Republic. 
it looks like who's king this week. And these guys really aren't even worthy of the name king. Basically, they are glorified gangsters who begin to take over the rule of the country. But that's really what they are. They, it, it basically amounts to these are, uh, who are these guys? They're generals or politicians that through crooked means and through violence take over the rule of the country. There's only going to be one king in the next several decades. The next three decades, the, the final decades of Israel's existence. There's only going to be one king who dies a natural death. And he doesn't deserve it. Keep reading. He reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menachem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah, came to Samaria, and struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, put him to death, reigned in his place. The rest of the deeds of Shalom, the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. At that time, Menachem sacked Sittifsa and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. Now, let me tell you what the significance of that is. Yeah, it's an atrocity. It's an atrocity of war. This is an atrocity that the pagans did. This is what the Assyrians did. when they, it, was, they, it was ruled by terror. And fact is, kings of Israel were not above this either whenever they waged war on their enemies. The significance of this is, this was an Israelite city. And this is what Menachem did to his own people. He's a gangster. He's a criminal. He's a terrorist. And he's now the king of Israel. We have an assassin being taken over by another assassin who's also a terrorist. Which is probably a worse terrorist. That's right. And oddly enough, he's the one who gets to die a natural death. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menachem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel. He reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise! Are we getting... Is this starting to become even monotonous? There is a point to the monotony. He did not depart from all his days. That's an interesting phrase that's introduced. That's not usual. In this little monotonous phraseology, that this, he didn't depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. It's kind of like God saying, I'm going to give you a chance. Terrorist though you are, criminal though you are, gangster though you are, I'm going to give you a chance. Just to show. Why is God, why would God show mercy to somebody like this? Why would God give somebody like this a break? Because he's God. He's God. At one point, this guy turned to God. I don't think so. I never see it. He did not depart all of his days. He did not depart all of his days. For the whole, all of his days, he never departed from the sins of Jeroboam and Nebat. The emphasis there is that God gave him days to do this. God gave him a number of days to do this. And every day of his reign was another day that he could have, he could have saved his reign and he could have saved his nation. And he had no interest in it. 
because God is long-suffering. That is, an, that is a word, it's a word that is not a contemporary word. And most of your contemporary translations do not use it. But it's a great word that's literally translated from the Greek, long-suffering, in the New Testament. Makrothumia, long-suffering. And it, con- it conveys something about patience that the word patience does not convey. This is one of the messages of, of the kings, as a matter of fact. Thank you, Pam, for bringing that up and prompts me to mention that. Because the king and the nation are one. The, the king really is the head of the nation. And here's what we see throughout the scriptures. And we see it beginning in the book of Judges. And we see it all the way through Samuel and King. God gives the people what they want. And when their hearts cry out for the Lord, God raises up someone for them. He raises up a deliverer. God raises up a leader. He raises up a king. When their hearts cry out to Him, He raises up a king for them who is righteous. But... The gravity of this world, the pull of pagan, the pull of idolatry. And remember there is a spiritual war going on here. Let's proceed quickly because there's so much more to cover. We're not there yet. In the 39th year, let's see, okay, verse 19, Pull, the king of Assyria, that's Tiglath-Pileser, the third. He adopted the name... He. Pull is the name that he used as the throne name when he conquered Babylon. Later than he conquered Israel and Samaria. But he's called Pull there. This is Tiglath-Pileser III. King of Assyria came against the land, and Menachem gave Pull a thousand talents of silver that he might help him confirm his hold on royal power. He thinks he's being smart. I need somebody to help me secure my throne. Terrorism isn't enough. I still have all of these revolts going on. I've still got all this. I'm going to hire. (laughs) Idiot. I'm going to hire. As a consultant. The Klingon Empire. I am going to bring the dragon into my kingdom to help me get it under control. Idiot! Menachem exacted money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So he extorts money from the wealthy, called it taxes, which he used directly to pay off Tiglath-Pileser to come into his country and to clean up his opposition. Clever. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Oh yeah, see, we're getting... This is just a temporary thing. Now the rest of the deeds of Menachem, no, the Tiglath-Pileser left in order to go and conquer Babylon. He'll be back. 
Uh, Menachem slept with his fathers. Pekahiah, the son, his son, reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menachem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with fifty men of the people of Gilead, struck him down in Samaria in the city at Citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah. He put him to death, reigned in his place. This apparently was a public act and a very publicly staged coup with 50 men. Didn't need an army, just got 50 guys together and it was a gang war. This is where Israel is now. You see, this is, do you see the train wreck getting ready to happen? Everything goes back to Jeroboam the first. Think of the judgment. All, every word of this is judgment on Jeroboam the first. He is the why? Because he is the one to whom God gave the opportunity to make something good out of something that was bad. And he didn't believe. And Pekah the... Uh, so all of this, the rest of these are Pekah high all he did. They're written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Go look it up if you want to see it. Libraries burned down. Verse 27, the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 20 years. Oh... And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, captured Ejon, Abobeth-Maka, Janoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, struck him down, put him to death, reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all he did are written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel. So Pekahiah comes in, he, he reigns, he continues the... Yeah, he continues, just everything that's going on, nothing changes until Tiglath-Pileser comes back to take what he figures is already his. He takes what he figures he's already bought. He's already been given. He's, already, he's got the receipts. And he's coming back to take over. He's still, the, the dragon is still hungry. So he comes back and he begins to take it over. He said for him to remain king, well, he's no longer king, yeah. so there's no promise anymore. Yeah. No, no more promise. And so his son Peter I said, hey, you know, if you want to be king, you're going to have to pay me. He said, I'm not going to pay you. Okay. I'll take it anyway. Came. And the northern part of the kingdom. The Assyrians came and were told, and were given such a brief description of this. We're not told the terror, the violence, the massacres, the atrocities. We see a little bit of a glimpse of that in the prophets. But that's the way the Assyrians waged war. They waged war by terror. See, that's what I 
I think the terrorists, when they took care of Israel, they gave, God gave the Israelites a glimpse of the future, what he had said was going to happen. And if they didn't get on their knees, which they did not. Which they did not. The Assyrians came over and took them. Every little bit, every, everything God has been warning all along, not only through prophets, but through everything that's taken place. And mankind continues, and his own covenant people are no different, continues to neglect to connect the dots spiritually. And in the day, and so Tiglath Pileser came, captures these, and what does he do? He institutes this particular policy that the Assyrians have decided this is the way we're going to handle these upstart kingdoms. We're going to deport all of its people. So in the northern kingdom, all these people, those who survived the Assyrian sword, are taken. They're not allowed to go back and to rebuild their homes. They're uprooted from their place. Every man, woman, and child of them. And marched in chains back to Assyria where they will be used in forced labor. So Pekahiah, uh, for some reason, loses political backing <laughs> at this point. And becomes ripe for an assassination by Hosea, son of Elah. Made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Struck him down, put him to death, reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Isaiah. Verse 32, in the second year... Of, okay, we're going to skip verse 32 and go on to uh, chapter 17, verse 1. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. He reigned nine years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who went before him. And by the way, you've got various things here. And if you look and you start comparing kings and chronicles, you see chronological issues. Again, this is one of those things that comes up. And this is something that actually the writer of Kings is using as a literary device. It's kind of like when a movie director who knows what he's doing starts showing things with jerky and shaky camera movements. Now, one of two things is true when you see a, a movie scene where you know, you've got all this jerkiness and all this going on. Either the director is incompetent or he's making a point and using it for effect. And, in a, and a, some directors are incompetent. They just do that. You know. But when he's good, he's using it to make a point. And the writer of Kings is not incompetent. He is a master. And he is using these conflicting and contradictory chronologies in order to make a point about the spiritual confusion and the political turmoil that's going on right now. Because what you've got in, different, in, in these different chronologies here, you see, one, king, one guy says, I'm the king, and I'm over here. And another guy says, no, I'm the king, and I'm over here. And so you've got basically gang war going on trying to take over the kingdom. And the writer of Kings says, hey, one's just as legitimate as the other. So I'm going to go ahead and call him king. 
one of them was just as damaging to the other. And one of them showed no more spiritual leadership than the other. So yeah, I'll call them both king. I'll call them all king. They all ended up on the throne. They all ended up being killed. Welcome to Israel. I don't understand that verse 2. Verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who was before him. There was something about him. He, he just... He didn't change the status quo. But he didn't... You notice the, the phrase is, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He set up this as a state religion. Hosea is not making a big deal about everybody going and worshipping at the idols. This is not a, a point of political allegiance for him. That's my guess on it. The deal is, there's something about Hosea's reign. It's mitigated. It's not, he's not a, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, you look at this guy in comparison with the other guys. He's not all that bad. That's basically what he's saying. He's not as bad as the other ones. But the other ones were rotten. So you really can't say that he was a good king. So that's kind of the, the point. So against him came Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria. Hosea became his vassal, paid him tribute. At this point, that makes sense. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt. There is a lot of turmoil going on in Egypt right now, by the way. There are about three different guys who were vying for the Pharaoh's throne, and one of them came to ascendancy, and uh, this looks like a name for a particular one of those kings. We won't get into all of that. Here's the deal. Egypt was trying to come back. Egypt was trying to make, you know, and, and thinking, you know, we, we've got some, we've got some, we're building up our military. We're going to become a power again. We're going to become a force again. And we're going to see this. Both Judah and Israel are tempted by Egypt. You make an alliance with us against the Assyrians. Now, both of them had missed the point. God had appointed Assyria to be a chastising rod. And God gave, God sent prophets particularly to Israel saying you submit to the chastisement and God will end up sparing us. Submit to the chastisement, repent of our sins, God will deliver us, God will spare us. But they couldn't quite get that point. So they thought, no, no. When we get to the days of Jeremiah and the last days of Judah, which we're not there yet, we just kind of forecast. Jeremiah is they actually think he's treasonous because he's saying you need to submit to the Babylonians. God sent them. If we submit to them, we will survive. <coughs> if we rebel against the Babylonians, we are, it is as rebellion against God and we will not survive it. But that's in the future. Right now we're looking at the fate of Israel. The king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. He'd sent uh, emissary. He's, he decides, I'm going to stop paying the Assyrian king this tribute money, this protection money. It's basically what it is because the Assyrian is a bigger gangster than the kings of Israel. I'm going to stop paying them protection and I'm going to see if I can maybe making a little alliance here with Egypt. Nothing's firmed up, but he sent this. King of Assyria got wind of this. 
They said, okay, we're not going to do that. Comes and takes him prisoner. Now, that's an interesting thing. He doesn't, doesn't execute him, just comes and hauls him off. I'm not sure which is worse. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land. You know what happened there. And came to Assyria, uh, and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Samaria held out for three years, hoping that some help would come from somewhere. There was no help. I will lift up mine eyes until the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. But Samaria had forsaken the Lord. And this time, there was going to be no help. This time, there was going to be no Elisha. This time, there were going to be no horses and chariots for Israel. This time, Samaria's going down. Took three years to do it. And you know the Assyrians. If they had to take three years in order to bring down a city, they're not going to be kind and generous to the inhabitants thereof. And the people inside Samaria who are already dying of hunger and thirst are going to be subject to the kinds of atrocities that you don't even want to think about. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And in one verse... we see the death of a nation with none of the details that we would expect a historian to offer. None of the juicy details that we would expect a novelist to convey to bring us into the drama. Because that's not the real tragedy. This occurred, verse 7, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and the customs the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves... By the way, did you know that nothing's secret from God? They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. And that wasn't the end for them. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, that I sent you by my servants the prophets. But they wouldn't listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been, who didn't believe the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and its covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. I want to point out this term, the false idol. There is no such thing as a true idol. The word false idol is just given there for emphasis. There is no true idol. Only false idols. 
Why is it called a false light? Because it promises one thing and it delivers nothing. I keep referring back to R.G. Lee's great sermon, Payday Someday. And this tagline from the sermon. Don't you know that the devil always pays in counterfeit money? They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. Eventually you will. You turn away from one, you're going to turn away from them all. They made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah, worshipped the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters of offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah also didn't keep the commandments of the Lord their God. They walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, gave them to the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of this sight. Here are the words of Jesus reflected. It is impossible that offenses should come, but woe be unto them through whom they come. It were better for that man that a stone were cast, a millstone were hung around his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Yeah, offenses and temptations would come to Judah, but where were they introduced from? Israel. So Israel bears the price of the tempter. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord, made them commit great sin. Now that is the point. It's not simply that Jeroboam had started something. He drove them from the Lord. That's how God saw it. He didn't just make up something. He required as loyalty to His kingdom the idolatrous worship of the Lord, which is false. That's why Jeroboam keeps coming back and is judged in every king's rule. Having, having read lots of court cases, this really sounds like the, a judge's opinion. It does, doesn't it? It does sound like a, a judge's opinion. It's it's just going line by line bingo, bingo. and every line of the indictment. And, and because Israel introduced the sin to Judah, they're gone. Judah remained. That's right. I'm sorry. Uh, that, that's a great point. And Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam did. Now here's the deal. Jeroboam did it and nobody did anything but approve it. The only people who stood up against it were prophets. And they were unpopular. Because everybody wanted to be different from the kingdom of Solomon. The kingdom of David's son. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight and until he had spoken, as he had spoken by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. That's not the end of the story. Because God's, when God gave the land as a promise to Abraham and then brought Israel into this land, he says, this place is mine. You're going to divide it up by lot, but I own it. You're the stewards. You're the tenants. 
I'm giving it to you to possess this land. I own it, not you. That's why Naboth refused to sell his vineyard to Ahab. I saw an idiotic letter to the editor this week that compared an annexation issue to Ahab taking Naboth. That's stupid. That's not what Ahab did, and that's not what the Naboth vineyard issue was about. But This land is my land. The Assyrians brought other people from all other places in here. They came in with their gods, their worship, their religions, their idols. Everybody you know, brought all their stuff from home. Because you want to have something familiar. And... God, still exerting his ownership of the land, sent lions to people were messed up. Of course, you know, there sociologists and zoologists and bio, you know anthropologists would say, you know, there's a reason why there, you know, you had this lion plague, you know, it's just you know population is removed and then you know you don't have people to clean out the, you know, the Writer of Kings says God sent lions. <laughs> Not quite, but he sent lions to uh, kind of assert his ownership of the land. So people started saying for the first time, well, we better find out about the God of this land in this area. So who did they send for? The, the old idolatrous priests of Israel. To come and teach them about the Lord Jehovah God. That's how they learned about the Lord. And so, not surprisingly, they took the worship of their gods. And they put them all under the worship of the Lord Jehovah God. Humanism. All the way. We can decide how we're going to serve whatever God we want to serve. Because the gods that we choose are simply that. They are the gods we choose. Verse 34, To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules of the law. The commandment the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them, commanded them, You shall not fear other gods. Bow yourselves down to them or sacrifice to them. You shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. Bow yourselves to him. To him you shall sacrifice. They wouldn't listen. Did according to their former manner. So, manner. so these nations feared, feared the Lord. Put in our, we'd put quotation, scare quotes around that. Feared the Lord. Yeah, they feared the Lord, all right. And they saw those serve their carved images. And their children did likewise. And their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do this day. These became the ancestors of the Samaritans. All of this. is about the breaking of the covenant, the spiritual implications of that. It looks like God has lost the war. <coughs> At least he's lost a huge strategic part of it. It looks like the devil is winning. It looks like Satan and his strategy of disrupting God's plan of a savior <coughs> by 
corrupting the hearts of his people. It looks like it's worked. Israel lasted 200 years. How old is this country? A little over 200 years. Give you a little perspective of time. All of these kings, there were times of long periods of prosperity and there were times of long periods of depression. They weren't long in the scheme of things. It was a drop in the bucket. We need to gain historical perspective on our own time. We need to understand the term of office of a president is nothing. We need to understand that a period of a long period, 10 years of prosperity is nothing. 10 years of recession is nothing. We need to gain historical perspective on things and spiritual perspective on things and we need to start looking at the spiritual warfare that is going on in this day for our generation. It looks like God has lost. What do you think? What are the odds? There's not much else to say about the Kingdom of Israel except farewell. But all this time, the sister kingdom of Judah has been fighting its own internal and external battles. In our next episode, we'll turn back to the heirs of King David's throne and see how they have fared. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.